Welcome to Policy Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about organisational policy and the processes involved in developing, implementing, evaluating and communicating changes and updates to policy effectively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jaganba, Na Gayabu, Yarrawa Peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has built her career working in the professional association and profit for purpose arena across an eclectic and diverse range of industries. Having attained her first C-suite role in her late 20s, Helen Jentz has continued in executive roles with state and national organisations including the Australian Medical Students Association, Diabetes Australia and our very own Toowoomba Chamber of Commerce. Her current role is heading up the Australian College of Educators, the longest serving most prestigious professional association for educators in Australia. An accomplished advocate, manager and leader, Helen's maverick style challenges traditional business operations and management while she continues to explore how not-for-profits operate and their place and purpose in the broader community. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Helen, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your current role and the organisation? I currently run an organisation called the Australian College of Educators, which is a professional association for the education profession here in Australia. And when I say education profession, that covers everyone from early childhood educators, school-based educators, tertiary education and vocational education and training. That's a big remit. It's a huge remit. It's one of those things you can't be all things to all people, but we certainly make a very good effort at delivering quality support services and products to the education profession. And how would you say you got to where you are now? Oh, a series of incorrect turns, quite (laughs) (laughs) possibly. I started my career actually in the advocacy and lobbying space. So I've always had an affinity for issues-based policy work. And when I started out, I was working for a number of professional associations very much in the the advocacy space. So working to represent the interests of certain groups and try to affect positive policy change at a local, state or federal government level. At some point, I took a wrong turn into management and from there, escalated into executive level positions, which brings a whole raft of other issues with them. And the policy I deal with now also encompasses internal policy as well as external advocacy uh, policy. So it's it's just a bigger job, you know, uh, but still representing the interests of particular groups of people. And of course, we're here to talk about policy today. Can you describe to me the role policy takes in your organisation? Look, I think I can safely say that in every single organisation I've ever run, there has always been this collective groan 
amongst the team when the words organisational policy appear on a whiteboard or a PowerPoint or a computer screen or even, you know, a piece of butcher's paper. And um, I'm sure some of our listeners won't even have the vaguest notion of the joys of butcher's paper and big (laughs) colourful pens as the tool of choice in strategic or organisational planning days. More often than not, Uh, The CEOs and managers are always far too busy or too focused on the big picture and they're usually the ones leading the collective moan or maybe that's just because they're the loudest voices in the room. I don't know. You know, let's face it, organisational policy and procedures, I'm going to add that in here, can only really aspire to be beige In most organisations, they're a a tome owed to organisational correctness. Uh, They're often the length of Tolstoy's seminal doorstop (laughs) war and peace. And team members are referred, and I do put that in, in the little flyaway inverted commas, they're referred to them on their first day of employment and told to make sure they read them. In many organisations, I liken them to the good China. It's lovely to know it's there and it's great if and when the Queen comes to visit, but otherwise it stays in the display cabinet for all to admire but never really touch. So you can argue that was then, that was policy when I first started out and perhaps I'm showing my age with that observation and this is now, and how does policy actually work in the organisations that I run now? And I'd like to say that, you know, in a truly modern, agile, forward-thinking, progressive organisation, and yes, there is a bottomless supply of new nomenclature that all truly boss leaders have at their fingertips, excuse the pun, Uh, that organisational policies and, yes, procedures, because procedures always follow policies, are developed, workshopped, checked for adherence to statutory requirements and placed on, now wait for it, where are they placed? On the shelf. (laughs) On the intranet. Ah, yes, the digital shelf. Exactly. It's the modern form of Nana's China cabinet. (laughs) and now I know that analogy is starting to become boring, uh, where team members can access it whenever they want to. But, you know, do they really want to? Mm. And it's always so difficult to search. Absolutely. So getting back to your question about how would I describe the role of policy within my organisation, I'd argue that I think everyone completing this MBA will already have a really solid definition of organisational policy and procedure. And it's generally words like policy communicates the organisation's values and expectations of employees and the course of action or guidelines to be followed in certain events or under certain circumstances. So procedures are then for want of a more eloquent terminology, the nitty-gritty. So if issue A presents itself to you as an employee, you must do B, C and D, correct, from a, a policy perspective. But my view has always been that policy has a really bad reputation, in spite of my beige comment earlier. 
Many managers and executives I've come across have referred to it as a necessary evil and then they usually insert the appropriately overdramatic eye roll. My approach in all organisations I've worked for has been to look at policy in a far more friendly way, I would say. I think we can agree that it's human nature, at least for most of us, particularly in a work setting, to want to have certain levels of assurity and confidence about how things operate. I believe this is the first purpose or role of policy in any organisation. Secondly, and I think perhaps more importantly, I think it's also human nature, and one might say, well, many people would say it's at least my nature, to want to push the boundaries of how things are done, how things are viewed and what can be achieved. So I believe the second role policy has is as a platform from which exciting and new ways of working and achievement can be launched. And in order to achieve that, members of staff need to have ownership of an agency regarding organisational policy. It can't be this nebulous ethereal being that hovers above them making sure they do the right thing, like you said, and then spending hours trying to find what policy fits where on the organisational intranet. I think policy, at taking into account the, the legislative and regulatory requirements, must be dynamic. It must be able to adapt and grow dependent on the changing dynamics of a range of factors. And that includes things like changing social expectations, changing markets, changing demographics in terms of your team. And I think that pretty much sums up how I view the role of policy within my organisation. So you've covered a lot there. One of the big things I picked up on or two of the big things I picked up on was flexibility and communication. When we're talking about a modern policy the modern use of policy in organisations today, that we don't want to shelve it, we've got to be able to communicate it, otherwise what's the point of it? How do we make sure that employees are understanding of policy, they know it's there, they know what it is, even if they can't recite it, and how do we make sure that they then, for want of a better term, live that policy? Well, I think it's, as you rightfully pointed out, it is a dynamic situation. So policy has to adapt to changing circumstances. Critical to that, to getting employees and staff to understand, have agency of and ownership of policy, is the way that policy is developed and the factors that have to be accounted for when that development takes place. So as I established, I've always worked on the, the premise that, that organisational policy is a dynamic living being that helps shape an organisation. So developing organisational policies, there are a lot of factors that need to be taken into consideration. Now, I do want to caveat that statement. And the caveat is that there are many factors that need to be considered, but not all of these will have an ultimate influence on the policy that is developed and implemented. And I think actually that's the first time I have referred to implementation, which is actually probably really remiss of me. 
and it comes back to the question you just asked, is that I think one of the most important factors that must be accounted for when developing policy is how is it going to be used or implemented? So let's face it, if it isn't going to be used, other than the stock standard reasons of complying with legislative requirements, what exactly is the point of organisational policy? And if compliance is all you're looking for or looking to achieve, I can tell you there are plenty of great websites, free websites, that lets you download whole suites of required organisational policies. You pop your corporate logo onto it (laughs) and you say, Bob's your uncle. And, yes, funnily enough, I do have an Uncle Bob, but... That's what many organisations do when it comes to policy. And they've ticked the box, haven't they? They have policy. There it is. If they get audited or something happens, they can quite happily refer to that intranet or that document on the shelf and say, we have policy. But if you do take a different approach to organisational policy and see it as being something that can galvanise your team, and provide a foundation and direction for achieving things, then how policy is developed and what it looks like and what factors it takes into consideration, as well as how it's going to be used, become really, really important. So to me, some of the basics that need to be considered when you're developing policy and you pointed this out earlier, is the team, your staff. Who are the people that make up your organisation? Because they're the ones that are going to be using this policy. So you're saying there that policy has to consider who the staff are, so perhaps their culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I I think you you have to think of demographics. You have to think of uh, age demographics. You have to think of gender. You have to think of roles, responsibility, how members of your staff identify. All of those factors should play an important part in how you're developing this policy and how effective it's going to be. The next thing I always take into consideration is the function of the policy. So, for example, a communications policy differs significantly from a workplace health and safety policy. Now, you may sort of question, well, how does it differ? They're both policies. Well, the question that I always ask is, what are they trying to achieve? So, with a workplace health and safety policy, you are trying to ensure that you as a business, as an organisation, ensure the environment in which your staff, but not only your staff, your clients, your customers, uh, visitors, colleagues, that the environment that they operate in, that they work in, is safe and healthy. And there are legislative requirements that you must meet. So the purpose of that policy is very clear. You as a CEO, you as a leader, you as a business owner must provide a safe and healthy work environment for your staff and anyone else who enters it. But when you talk about a communications policy, what's its purpose? 
and you'd probably know better than me given your background, but from my perspective, Daniel, and and certainly from the organisations I've run, communications policy is multifaceted. It's, It's about protecting brand in one instance to make sure that how messages are communicated from your organisation are done so in a a professional, strategic, appropriate way. It's also about establishing who can communicate and who you can communicate to and what processes have to be followed. So I think knowing what the function of the policy is going to be is is intrinsic to how you're going to develop the policy. I think another factor that has to come into consideration is consumer, client, stakeholder expectations. So do they hold your organisation to account in that are they engaged with your business or organisation in such a way as to want certain levels of assurity about how it's operated. Now, to give you a couple of examples with this that I think everyone will relate to, I'm sure off the top of your head, you can think of numerous examples of businesses that have suffered because of their behaviour or lack of adherence to an accepted policy. So one jumps out at me uh, is Rio Tinto. Mm, The recent incident, yes. That's right. Now, did you know Rio Tinto has a reconciliation action plan and a cultural heritage policy? I didn't know that, but I imagine that that would be a very common policy, especially in big businesses these days. Exactly. And yet, did their actions adhere to their policy? So the question there is, what's going on? Why wasn't the policy adhered to? Was it a fact that this policy was developed and then just remains on the shelf so that we can say, yep, there, we've got this policy, aren't we great? Another really good example, I think, of where stakeholder expectations around organisational policy are really important is, and this will be a bit controversial, is Parliament. What have we just been experiencing in the highest office of our country around sexual harassment and discrimination? Wouldn't you expect a government should have organisational policy that dictates how people behave around those particular areas? Well, I think it's quite clear that the Australian public absolutely do have an expectation of how parliamentarians and people who work in Parliament House should behave. Now, you look at things like the Sex Discrimination Act and other acts of Parliament and regulations that you would think should have been applied in these circumstances, but they weren't. Or if they were applied, they certainly weren't adhered to. So there's this out-of-step situation between policy or organisational policy or governmental policy, laws, what Um, the leadership of organisations or government espouse to others and what actually happens, what what they're doing, this disconnect. Absolutely. I think these are great examples of that disconnect. And what that shows is that the policy is not dynamic and is not seen to be intrinsic to the way the organisation operates on a day-to-day basis. And then 
layer over the top of that the fact that there are expectations from your, as I said, your clients, your customers, your constituents, your stakeholders. I think if if we put this in, an, say, a university context, I imagine, you know, within a university context, there are many, many stakeholders. One of the big stakeholders within a university are your students. Now, your students, and this comes back to some of the other factors that I think need to be taken into consideration when developing policy. I'm sure students coming through now have different expectations about how things should operate within a university environment to those of, say, even 20, 30 years ago. But a lot of organisations have the same policies, just updated in line with legislation, that they've had for the last 10, 20 years. And that's not making policy work for your organisation. So then there's a need to bring in all your stakeholders and discuss what's changing culturally, what's shifting, and how do we respond to that? Policy should be a living document. Absolutely. And I think that's something that a lot of organisations miss is that these policies, what are seen as internal policies, are actually no longer only internal. A lot of businesses nowadays, and and you've probably seen examples of this, uh, a number of superannuation organisations are not doing business with certain companies unless they can show that that company has certain policies in place surrounding environmental issues, surrounding gender equity issues. So this is a really good example of why these factors need to be taken into consideration when you are developing policy for your organisation that is a living document. I want to change tact a bit now and think about how policy can influence an organisation. So we've been talking about how policy can go wrong and we've also talked a bit sort of more broadly about how policy should influence an organisation. But I wonder if you have any experiences that you can share of when policy has influenced an organisation for the better, has it altered its bottom line, has it um, made everyone happier in the workplace, for instance? don't know if anyone would ever say policy makes them happy but <laughs> let's 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 go with that I'm trying to make we? the podcast more exciting absolutely <laughs> not so, not so beige given the topic matter I don't think that like I don't have a personal uh, anecdote that I can give you where I can say doing this in a policy sense has affected the bottom line, basically because that's not sort of the organisations I run. I I run not-for-profits as a general rule. But what I will take you through is an example I have where I identified that the policy we had wasn't working how it should be and what we did to address that and then what sort of positive outcomes it had. So I'm going to, uh, something near and dear to your heart, I'm going to talk communications policy. And who can talk about what? 
what training they need, what processes must be followed. But then what happens when new technology comes into being that enables anyone, anywhere, to communicate their opinions, once again, my air inverted commas, and how as an organisation do you manage something so completely unmanageable as this? And, we, and we've seen a lot of that in the media over the last few years. Social media policy is, is a new thing um, that companies are probably struggling with a lot. Um, we've seen disastrous events in, in, in say, the sports uh, disciplines um, across the country. Absolutely, absolutely. So in every organisation I've ever worked in, and I'm sure where you work, obviously, at USQ, there's always been a policy about who can say what to whom and when in terms of outwards-facing communications. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. And this usually falls under the banner of a communications policy. Uh, There are specific areas that restrict who can talk to the media and under what circumstances they can do that, who can send correspondence to elected officials on behalf of the organisation, all those types of outwards-facing engagement issues. Uh, One of the things I've always found in the many organisations I work with is there always seems to be, and this is excellent the examples you just gave around sport, there always seems to be this disconnect between organisational policies that are assumed to apply to employed staff and their application to, say, volunteers or unpaid staff. So I suppose the first question to answer should be, is there a difference? In your opinion, do you think there's a difference? I think we end up with both of those types of people representing the organisation despite their employment definition. Exactly. And spot on, in my experience, the answer is no, there is no difference. If volunteers are undertaking certain activities and tasks on behalf of or in the organisation, then organisational policies necessarily have to apply to them. And and certainly, sorry to cut you off there, but certainly, again, in the media in recent years, we've had volunteers and paid members of organisations get quite a lot of media um, over and above potentially the leaders of those organisations at the time. I'm thinking about things like, for instance, the... um, one from the bushfires where, where we had the, the volunteer fireman um, saying something crude about the Prime Minister, um, which was played and played and played again. Yep, absolutely. And I think this leads us to, you know, a more difficult and challenging question as leaders and executives in organisations is how do you ensure that these policies do apply to volunteers, so non-paid employees as well as paid employees. So I was running a national professional association and there was a volunteer board. Now, the board members had been elected based on several different criteria, including skills and experience, 
but there was also a representative component to their selection, uh, such as, you know, what area of the profession did they work in? The profession was incredibly diverse and obviously the various sectors needed to be represented at the board level. Now, most of these board members were high-profile professionals who either ran or held positions in their own right. And at this point, I would argue these people are not always that amenable to being told what they can and can't do. I'm sure we've all had that experience. We had in place a board induction program that takes all board members through their duties and obligations, including our organisational policies and procedures. And I always made sure to draw particular attention to the communications policy. And I had a little trick, which I still employ to this very day, where I do some background research on the board member and the organisation they work for. So I've got some basis uh, to do this. And I draw parallels with their own organisation or, or employer you'd know the type of thing, Daniel, I sort of say to them, oh, I just recently saw that your company was in the media because of X, Y, Z. I I bet having a strong communications policy helped to ensure that the staff involved were protected and no one was talking to the media who shouldn't be, you know, things like that. So drawing the correlation between what they do in their paid employment and what's important in their voluntary capacity. So you can imagine my surprise when one day I get a panicked phone call from my communications manager telling me to go on Facebook as a matter of urgency. Now, I want to say at this point in the story, I need to digress and I need to provide you with a little more context. I absolutely detest social media. (laughs) I think it comes from my deeply rooted lack of interest in what other people are doing and my belief that other people should have a similarly negligible level of interest in what I ate or didn't eat for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, And please, Daniel, don't get me started on influences. But back to the example at hand. At the behest of said communications manager, I begrudgingly agreed to establish a work Facebook profile and a LinkedIn profile for the purposes of being able to post work-related material on the company's pages, etc. After several attempts to log in due to not being able to remember the required passwords, I go to the board members page that I've been directed to and I would like to say at this point I was shocked at what I found, but unfortunately with the board member in question, I wasn't. There plastered across multiple social media platforms was a personal diatribe condemning a certain minister and government for a raft of perceived failures, all with the name of my association, the one that I ran, emblazoned in bold at the top noting that this particular person had a position on the board and tagging the organisation. And what was worse was then the reference to the opinion piece that the same board member had written that was to be published in a national broadsheet the following day. Oh, 
you've got a complete media disaster on your hands. <laughs> so, hmm, what to do? I'm thinking to myself, isn't the communications policy abundantly clear? <laughs> Weren't all board members reminded regularly of the communications policy and how it applies to them? And I suppose this is where things appear to have unravelled somewhat. The board was aware of the communications policy. This particular board member just didn't think it applied to him in relation to personal platforms such as Facebook, Twitter and the like. So, look, I won't bore you with the details of the crisis management part of this story, which involved contacting the newspaper, having several conversations with the board member in question, you know, politely but forcefully requesting that, you know, perhaps they remove references to our organisation, et cetera. What this incident did, it provided me with the impetus for policy change, uh, more specifically the development of additional policy. And I realised it was time to introduce a very specific social media policy for the organisation. Now, what did that look like? Well, we stem back to some of the beginning of this conversation about the factors that I needed to take into consideration and the views that different parties who needed to be involved in the development of this policy had when it came to things like social media. So, for example, at the university level, I'm sure there's a social media policy for staff and I'm sure it states, you know, that you don't, in your social media, you don't talk on behalf of the university, those types of things. But how do you actually stop people from doing that? And also, can you stop people when you actually want them to use their social media platforms to promote activities and initiatives that your organisation does or is delivering. So there's a real conflict here, isn't there, in terms of how that policy needs to work and how it will actually work. And and that would be a different thing for different levels of the organisation too, I imagine. There's a there's no disconnecting top level people at an organization from the organization. You know, the the, the vice chancellor of USQ cannot be disconnected from USQ in terms of their social media communications, whereas a low-level employee, for instance, you know, that, that could be quite easy, as simple as a, you know, I do not hold the views of the, the organisation does not hold the same views as me or the, the statement that everyone uses these days. Exactly. But even, a, you know, if we look at it slightly differently, is that it doesn't take much. Even if, if a staff member has nothing on their, say, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram that states anywhere that they are employed by your organisation. All it takes is a simple Google search and I can assure you something will come up on LinkedIn and that will say where they work. So there's all these idiosyncrasies and interconnectedness that as an organisation you have to be aware of. But your policy is not going, to, and, and particularly a static policy, is not going to be able to help you manage all these complexities. And it's certainly 
can't be a policy that is going to attempt to inhibit the use of these platforms. Because let's face it, these platforms are just the latest in an ever-evolving series of web-based communications, you know, methods. Yes, it's what TikTok today, who knows what it's going to be in 12 months' time. Or two months' time. (laughs) or Or two months' time. You're absolutely right. And so how do you, as a CEO or a manager or a leader of an organisation, how can you rightfully have a static policy that sits on the shelf or on your internet that says when it comes to social media, this is what we expect when you're not taking into consideration human nature, the the need for, for people to want to express themselves, to use these platforms to put out their opinions and views and ideas. So that long-winded, sorry, story leads me into Yes, the development of a social media policy, which was essential, and how that policy was developed was very consultative in the organisation because there's really nothing from a legislative perspective uh, unless, sorry, that's probably not correct. You know, there, there are still legislative requirements around things like harassment, around bullying, those types of behaviours that all have an influence on a social media policy and must have an influence on a social media policy. But there's nothing from a legislative perspective that says employees or volunteers must do X, Y, Z in relation to social media. So as an organisation, you have to view, or what we did was we used this as an opportunity to actively engage with as broad a stakeholder group as possible, including our volunteers, because engaging our volunteers at the beginning of the policy development ensured that they felt they had a level of ownership of it. Therefore, by having a level of ownership of it, it necessarily follows that it applies to them, which was critical. Now, the positive outcome in terms of the organisation as we went through the development and implementation process was that we as an organisation saw a greater harnessing of social media as a positive platform to promote the work of the organisation. So you've been able to turn this around from being something to protect your organisation because of a negative situation to a positive situation, something that's going to help your organisation, advance your organisation, communicate great things about your organisation. And to me, you've just summed up what great policy is about. So this stems from a policy that an internal policy that most people generally roll their eyes about, think, well, it doesn't really apply to me. I'm I'm not the CEO. I'll never be speaking to the media. I'll never be doing this. So how does it really, how is it really relevant to what I do in my day-to-day work to developing this dynamic and evolving policy to say, well, actually, as a member of our team, be it paid or volunteer, 
you do have a role to play in how the organisation communicates, in how the organisation is represented in these different communications platforms. And what we as an organisation want to do is ensure that we give you the tools and the autonomy to use that platform in a positive way whilst from an organisational perspective, we are managing our risk of those platforms doing any sort of damage to the organisation. And to me, that's good policy. Absolutely. I'd like to thank you, Helen, for making this podcast about policy interesting and bringing it into the modern age by talking about social media policy. I'd like to end on one question which is what advice would you give to our students graduating and moving into leadership positions, maybe even eventually senior leadership positions? What advice would you give to them about policy and understanding the policy landscape? I think the advice for what it's worth, and I don't tend to give advice because let's face it, most people don't listen to you, is that organisational policy Your mindset as a leader has to change when you're viewing policy. You know, speaking from my my own perspective and harking back to when I was doing my master's and the thought of doing a subject on policy, uh, seriously, the the doona cover over your head and rock (laughs) back and forth. It, It was something that you knew you had to do yes, you you have to do this, but why, why do I have to do this? You have to change your mindset. You have to look at organisational policy as a leader as being a tool, a mechanism through which to really affect positive outcomes and change for your organisation. And as such, as a leader, you have to be involved with your team in how policy is developed. You don't hive it off to your different areas of, you know, human resources, you manage that policy, my financial or CFO, you manage the finance policy. It has to be an exercise when you're developing policy that brings your team together and enables them to see the importance of why dynamic organisational policy is in the best interest of the organisation and is in their best interests in their day-to-day activities. Helen Jens, that was fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast produced by the Office for the Advancement of Learning and Teaching.